0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today on Crafted we are switching things up a bit. Normally on Crafted, we are talking to experts in various fields about the art and the business of various craft categories like craft beer, natural wine, coffee, and more. But today, we are kicking off a new series called Amateur Hour. And the point here is to talk to people who aren't necessarily the top experts or the biggest shakers and movers in a particular field, but instead they just happen to be insanely passionate about things like knives or watches or traditional bows. Traditional hunting bows are, in fact, the subject of this inaugural Amateur Hour episode on Crafted, and who better to kick things off than the guy that most of us here at Blister would describe as the most interesting man in the world, our very own Paul Forward. Paul and I talk about the art, ethics, and craftsmanship of traditional bows, when and how Paul first became fascinated by them, and Paul is going to make the case about why the rest of us ought to appreciate them too. This is a fun one, and I promise that you are definitely going to learn a thing or two about a category with a very rich history, and ethos. And so with that, it's Amateur Hour time with me and Paul Forward. Here we go. All right, well, I am extremely happy to be launching this new series on Crafted called Amateur Hour with the one and only Paul Forward, who, as most of the people who know Paul, Paul is kind of the furthest thing from an amateur in many different walks of life. But nevertheless, I really just wanted to have this conversation with him about bows and more specifically, what we're calling traditional bows. So, Paul Forward, thanks for launching our Amateur Hour series. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jonathan.
1: And I would say that I am like kind of a full-time amateur at everything I do. So,
0: I'm not sure I'd yeah, I'm very far removed from an amateur in anything. <laughs> well, the the one thing I do know about you related to this topic is that because I just learned this like three minutes ago, you <laughs> actually write articles for a publication <laughs> called what? <laughs> oh, I've written a couple of articles for a magazine called Traditional Bowhunter Magazine. Traditional Bowhunter Magazine. The other thing I just learned which actually is maybe a lot less cool than writing for a traditional Bowhunter magazine, is that you all tend in this world, you call this trad life? No,
1: no, no, no. I don't. I was, I was, I mean, there are people who do, but I think it's funny. I was, that was like, can't think of a good skiing equivalent, but no, no, I don't say that.
0: Okay. You don't, you don't talk <laughs> about the tra- that trad life.
1: Only, okay. only in jest. Only, okay. only when I'm
0: talking to my wife about why I have to go do something. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, Well, for those who might need an introduction to Paul Forward, well, we have a number of Gear 30 podcasts with Paul. You can go check those out. But Paul resides in Girdwood, Alaska. He is a doctor. He is a lead heli guide for Chugach Powder Guides. He occasionally writes for traditional... Bo Hunter <laughs> magazine, <laughs> which I just learned, and he is currently well, where are you currently, Paul? Kotzebue, Alaska, which is Kotzebue, Alaska, kind of the northwest corner of the state in the Arctic, well above the Arctic Circle. Well above the Arctic Circle. So, I feel like all of these things this is why I feel a little hesitant to sort of introduce amateur hour. Because like, I don't know, it seems like a bow hunter should be living above the Arctic circle and all that stuff. But nevertheless, uh, you're fun to talk to and you know a lot about a lot of actually different things. And so, let's go ahead and get into this. When did you first start getting into traditional bows? And I guess that is perhaps the same time you got into traditional bow hunting, but maybe not. Explain.
1: Yeah, I I was lucky to have a, a a dad who was like a really avid bow hunter. So I was kind of like just born into it. And there's pictures of me when I'm really, really little with like various types of like sticks with, you know, shoelaces tied strung across them. And uh, so, I mean, every little kid wants to be like their dad, I think. And I just want to do what my dad did and he shot his bow all the time. So I want to shoot my bow all the time. And so, I mean, my earliest memories, I had like various weird little bows made up and uh my dad uh, kind of bucked a lot of the technology trends in hunting and kind of stuck to the old style long bows and recurves that were kind of at that time you know i was born in 79 uh, like pretty shortly thereafter that was when the compound bows started to really hit the market. i think actually before that but they were really hitting catching a lot of steam at that point which are like quite mechanical and it become really mechanical. They're like they're like machines now that have triggers and uh, mechanical advantages and pulleys built into them, and sometimes like electronics even. But um, uh, he bucked that trend. I I always thought it was kind of because it was just too cheap to buy something new. <laughs> wow, wow. He, he knows. He knows. I think that, and, and I'm and I'm probably right. But I, but so, you know, we, luckily we I grew up in Alaska, you know, there was, it's it's not an easy place to grow up bow hunting, but there's, you know, if you have somebody in your family who does it, there's opportunities for sure. And I just was obsessed with it from early on and not just the hunting part, but just like the archery part. You know, we would just, that was like a family thing. We just shoot our bows you know, you would come home after, after school and uh, my dad would come home and you just. Grab a bow and shoot some arrows. It's a fun thing to do. Um, I do. It my kid's three, and we already like kind of do it together. <laughs> wait, wait a sec. What are you doing
0: with your three-year-old son? Oh, he's got
1: he's got various funny little kid bows that you know, okay. can like pull back and shoot. I mean, they're not, they're not dangerous. They don't have anything sharp. There's not them.
0: like sharp pointy things no, on the end. No. Okay, <laughs> no, no. I think That's he's got to be at least
1: four. <laughs> four. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He, he wants He wants. like, he talks to me about how he's going to be a big kid and get real arrows and a real bow and a real knife. But he knows he's not big enough
0: for that yet. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So, you talked a bit about like the activity of archery. And that kind of checks out. I think any little kid who gets to go into the backyard after school and start, you know, slanging bows around. Like the activity of archery, I can see getting into like, pretty easily. But when did you start really getting into the bows themselves? Oh, I think I, I've always kind of been a,
1: into like how stuff works and different kinds of things and trying different stuff out. And so, I think it was pretty young. My dad had a bunch of weird old bows that he'd gotten from various people had given him over the years, a couple of broken ones and as soon as i was strong enough to start pulling them back i was just like every bow i could get my hands on i was trying it out and when we would meet the rare other person who shot traditional bows ie long bows and recurves um i would always ask if i could try their bows like if we went to the archery shop which there was a little archery shop in our town growing up i would just immediately go to the traditional bows whatever they had in the place which was usually some weird old stuff and If if I could pull them back, I would ask if I could shoot them. I just was obsessed with the feeling of trying stuff out. I mean, kind of probably the same thing that makes me want to try every pair of skis that's ever been made. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And why like I can't paddle the same kayak twice in a row on the same river because I got to try stuff.
0: So, Hmm. I I mean, I think you probably can relate to that a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Um, Okay. Let's define a couple terms. Long bows versus recurves. Are these synonyms? What's the difference we should understand? Since we're all going to, you know, listen to you on this conversation and then go to the bar and impress our friends about how much we know about traditional bows.
1: Okay. So, um, visually, uh, if you look at a recurve, like in inside profile, you'll see there's like a curve to the tip. Whereas a long bow, it's, it's more, it's, there, there's, the limbs are kind of straight. But the I like think the best way to describe it, like the, like the kind of best definition would be on a long bow, on the tips of the bow, the string only makes contact with the very tips, with the um, with the string grooves. And on a recurve, it, when it's not being pulled back, the string makes contact with not just the very tip, but also part of the limb. And the limb is kind of the working, like the spring part. So, the, the, the string sits kind of in a groove on the limb when the bow is at rest on a recurve. And the reason that recurves kind of came about, I think, is because the, the limb c- can be made to be a little bit more efficient. And so you get a, you might get a little more cast out of the bow, for this poundage that you're pulling back with that recurve shape, it's like a more more efficient cast, spring. yeah, more power, more cat, more power, yeah, more okay. power,
0: like more. So so the arrow will go faster, basically. And then, are there strong camps? The longbow camp versus the recurve camp? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, the the act of shooting them is
1: so, it's like the same, right? I mean, the only thing that's really different is the grips oftentimes are different. And there's, we can talk, talk about, I could talk about this forever, but like the the grip, there's some more traditional style longbow grips that are like, uh, the, where the grip's like very flat and narrow, um, or sometimes the grip is just like almost just a continuation of the limbs, just a little thicker. Um, whereas a recurve oftentimes can have a traditional style grip like that, but oftentimes will have almost more of like a pistol grip. It's more like contoured to your hand. Um, and then a lot more mass in the, the, the middle part, the limbs are attached to is called the riser. And, uh, so the recurves typically have a little more mass there, but by and large, like if, if you're a competent archer with a. With one or the other, you can just pick up uh, the uh, the opposite, pick up a recurve and shoot and shoot it well. Pick up a longbow and shoot it well without too much adjustment. It, and it's like it's almost the same exact thing. Whereas, like again, going to a compound, you know, a modern compound, you don't even touch the string with your hand. You t- you uh, you trigger. Yeah, you use like a trigger device to touch the string, and so. Um, but recurves and longbows pretty interchangeable. I I've really gravitated toward longbows for a variety of reasons. Um so that's pretty much all I use these days, but I've shot lots of recurves in my life.
0: Why do you gravitate toward longbows? I mean, part of it is just
1: I think they're beautiful. They're aesthetic, they're simple, they're light. The limbs are are, are thin, you know, recurve limb and again, there's always exceptions. Every kind of bow has been made, but typically it, a longbow limb is is real thin and uh, they're just beautiful. Beautiful, light elegant little, little, uh, little bows, um, recurves tend to be a little blockier and bulkier and, and heavier, uh, which can give you some advantages for shooting. Um, some people find the heavier bow to be more stable. Um, just but, like uh, skis, Paul, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. Just, you know, I, you know, I like heavy skis, but, <laughs> uh, but just like with skis with, uh, with good technique, you can overcome that. And then the other thing about longbow limbs, one of the things about the recurve limb when that recurve kind of unfolds as you draw it back, that wide, like recurved limb, depending on how it's built, uh, can can you can generate some like torsional flex if you're if you're torquing the string with your fingers. And so if you're not just pulling straight back on the string, if you're creating some torque, the limbs can actually twist a little bit, and that can affect the accuracy. Um, so, like Olympic shooters shoot recurves, but those are they're made with carbon so they're like highly torsionally rigid i mean this a lot of this kind of translates into skis too right yeah. like you and i talk about yeah. this all the time um and actually it even translates more because um most of the bows that i enjoy shooting um have fiberglass laminations in the limbs um, not
0: not carbon
1: yeah i, I don't enjoy I, i've owned i still probably have a couple of carbon bows laying around um but uh they're cool and they're fast but i uh i don't enjoy shooting them as much and and in a recurve the carbon gives you can give you quite a bit of extra of extra speed and it also gives that you can be pretty stable in a long bow you don't gain a lot especially the kind of bows i shoot um and so the the fiberglass just takes a lot more of a beating and i beat the crap out of my bows the way i hunt you know, my bows get bounced around on the rocks and you know they carbon limb as you know you know carbon skis or bikes the integrity of it can be compromised pretty easily by a little nick or a ding or something like that. And I, like I said, my, my bows take kind of a beating because of the kind of hunting that I do. So I prefer fiberglass bows. Plus the other thing about fiberglass is that, um, I love, I love beautiful wood grains and wood veneers. And, uh, I have shot some bows that are called self bows and we, I can talk about that in a second. But the bows that I mostly shoot are laminated bows where the the limb itself is made out of a sandwich construction. Again, not not that different than skis, built in a press. Again, not that different than skis. Uh, But it's usually a a construction that consists of like a couple layers of fiberglass. There's usually a bamboo core, which provides a lot of the efficiency and the cast. And then laminated, usually under the clear fiberglass limb laminations can be like very beautiful, very thin uh, decorative veneers. And I just love it. I mean, I'm just a sucker for beautiful wood grains and those clear fiberglass laminations. Like, really bring that out. And I, I just, I like them. I <laughs> think they're
0: beautiful. So, let's talk about the current landscape in like bow hunting. Or, well, a couple things to talk about. My impression is that, well, bows and bow hunting is kind of trending it's having a moment agree i mean agree or disagree on that and then another related question is is it maybe not that people are getting out to hunt with say traditional bows but are in fact getting into archery just going out and shooting targets with traditional bows what's the landscape look like in your opinion it's a great question i don't i don't know the numbers. Um, in the, in the, <laughs> the
1: spirit of this being a, like an amateur podcast, yeah. I didn't like go yeah. look stuff up cause I didn't want no, to, no. um, but, uh, in Alaska, y- you know, I, I don't think bow hunting is like super popular. I'm actually on the board of directors for the Alaska bow hunting association. And, uh, I don't think the growth of bow hunting is, is anything that's like taking off here. Like may- maybe it's growing slowly, slightly, but Alaska is kind of a tough place to bow hunt and there's not a lot of, um, or can be. And it's, there's not a lot of places that are um, exclusively uh, reserved for bow hunting and not a lot of, and there's almost no bow hunting seasons here. Like you guys have in Colorado and a lot of the lower 48, there's designated bow seasons. My understanding is that from friends that live elsewhere is that in the last decade or so, there's been a rapid growth in bow hunting and particularly like in the kind of places where we live, like mountain towns. Where people are, you know, fit outdoor people that love being outside or looking for another way to get out and have adventures, and they like being out in the mountains anyway. And the idea of bringing home some really high quality meat and having a cool adventure is attractive. And some people use firearms, and some people are drawn to the idea. Maybe there's a little bit of a romantic idea of using a bow, or maybe sometimes it's just like the seasons are more conducive to having a good time. Like when you know September is open for archery only in some places, it's like a fun time to hunt the elk are in the rut, for example, or Mule deer in the high country early season or archery only, and that's really fun. So people use bows for that reason. But I'm not sure if it's like growing rapidly. I think the number of people like kind of doing like the backpack style wilderness hunting has definitely increased, I think, a lot um over the last decade or so. And part of that's gear, part of that's probably the internet and social media. Um, and also quite frankly, the archery side. I mean, like the bows that I shoot, I feel like if I'm not shooting my bow you know, four or five days a week, all year long, like every winter, like I get home from heli skiing, I go out shoot a few arrows, a few arrows. I get home from work here in Kotzebue, shoot a few arrows. Um, I feel like you kind of have to do that with a traditional bow to like be a really, um, responsible hunter because it's all about making like a, you know, a very clean, painless, uh, death for the animal. With modern archery equipment, you know, like you could go to an archery shop tomorrow, Jonathan, and you know, you're an athletic guy. You, you know, you have a good sense of body awareness. I bet you, you could be like out shooting me with a modern compound within a week
0: or two um, with, with me with my longbow just because the technology is so good. At first, I thought you meant I could like go <laughs> shoot you. And I was like, this <laughs> no, is no. getting spicy. Okay, <laughs> no, we're not turning this into like, yeah, mono, mono. No. <laughs> okay, no, no, no. Okay, no. yeah, no, you could
1: you could be like you could get a bow and you could be like, you could be like grouping arrows at 40 yards, which I can I can stick arrow I can keep arrows in a fairly good group of 40 yards. That's t- literally taken me like 30 years of dedicated practice to, uh, to like to get to that point. And, uh, and I wouldn't shoot I wouldn't shoot an animal that far. But you could with, at 40 yards with uh, some practice and a modern bow, you could be doing that in your first few months. So it's so there's the, the barrier to the barrier to entry
0: is a lot lower with the modern equipment for sure. And again, this is amateur hour. So, this, you know, your facts don't have to be right here. (laughs) But are we seeing like compound bow sales, like way outpace longbow recurve bow sales? Like this would be like, we'll stick to some ski analogies. This will help us out. (laughs) Like if I, is this like asking the question of like, How many people telemark ski? And the answer is way, way, (laughs) way fewer than people who just Alpine or Alpine touring. Unfortunately,
1: like as a telemark, as a reforming, reformed telemarker, I would say that the analogy is pretty apt. Uh, There's like, I I think it's, I mean, I could go, I could talk about that analogy a little bit. Um, But I think that from like a number standpoint, I think that probably holds up. Huh. Like when I, you know, when when I, you know, there's there's this one place in Alaska called the Dalton Highway, and it's pretty popular. It's like one of the very few places that's archery only. And I spent just a couple of days up there this year just in passing through, um, long story, but I was passing through on a trip with my wife and, uh, it's a caribou hunting area off the, off the road. And there's a lot of people out running around with bows because it's archery only. And it was like, you know, 20 to one, 10 or 10 or 20 to one, uh, compounds to traditional bows. Actually, here's a funny story. I was at the gas station up there in Dead Horse, Alaska, getting gas in my my old truck. And uh, the guy getting gas across from me, only two people at the gas station, middle of nowhere, Dead Horse, Alaska, goes, are you Paul Forward? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And I said, yeah. And he said, I love your articles in traditional Bowhunter magazine. So, take that, Jonathan. <laughs> mm-hmm. You are trad life famous. <laughs> trad life famous. And he was living the trad life. He had his he had his longbow. He was up there having a good time with his bow. Super nice guy.
0: Did you ask him if he had heard of Blister?
1: <laughs> I did <laughs> not. Okay. He was from Indiana, so I'm not sure. I don't I don't know how many viewers or how many readers do you have in Indiana. Oh, you know, all of them. <laughs> all, of,
0: all of them. No. Um okay. No, well, wow. so getting, sh- getting shout outs from because of your writing for yeah. It was super nice. It was actually magazine. really because I assume nobody read them, so it was cool. Okay. So, what I've just learned is that trad bow people are kind of the telemark skiers of the hunting <laughs> world. <laughs>
1: oh man, I don't know. In in like the numbers, I would say yes. I would say in the uh in like the pursuits. I I this is just my bias, but I think that you know there's two as you mentioned there's like two different aspects of this right there's like archery for the sake of archery which i think is is growing in our country and it's really popular like there's parts of asia where archery is like a really popular sport like in korea archery is super popular japan there's a lot of archers um there's parts of europe where archery is fairly popular and lots of parts of the u.s where archery in and of itself is like you know shooting targets you know shooting paper basically is really popular um, and then there's the bow hunting side of it, and there's some overlap there's a lot of people that do both, but there's also a lot of people that kind of do one or the other and uh I would say on the bow hunting side a, a lot of the like traditional bow hunters i mean you're intentionally creating like a massive handicap for yourself, and I guess you could know, argue telemarketers are doing that too <laughs> yeah they are <laughs> but uh, well they are they they definitely are but uh you're doing it like you know for an extra challenge, and not just that but for the interaction with the the animal when you have to get to 20 yards is really, really different than when you only have to get to like 40 yards, much less when you're rifle hunting and you have to only get to 300 yards or right. nowadays 500 yards. And so, um, it's, it's a really different activity, you know, like it's much more intense and, uh, it, I think there's a lot of people that are just drawn to that, uh, that experience it just it just it's really really cool and and i mean it also feels feels kind of right you know it's like animals you know have evolved to evade predators most predators are pretty dangerous at 20 yards or 10 or 20 yards you know the animals i hunt you know their predators are primarily wolves sometimes bears and like if a wolf was crouched where i am when i could take a shot like you know i shot my sheep this year at seven yards uh like that's the wolf probably would have got that sheep you know they're super aware right and so i think it's like kind of in in my own weird way, I justify it as being really fair. Like, it's like true mm-hmm. fair chase, you know? Like, the animals yep. have evolved for millions of years in some cases to like, and I feel like, um, you know, they're a full-time professional prey and I'm a part-time amateur predator. <laughs> uh, and that bow just like makes that, makes it that way. Uh, I feel like it's the most, yeah,
0: yeah. I think that's actually a really kind of compelling case. Like, you know, I mean, you and I, frankly, we've talked a lot about this, like yeah. taking the life of an animal. That's okay. not a small thing. No. And so to have to develop the skill set to, you know, not just sit from 500 yards away and take something out, but to get that close and to be able to hone those skills to track, to get into maybe not always, but you referenced your last hunt seven yards yeah i think i can see how that would actually appeal to a lot of people
1: yeah it's really intense i mean i've skied a lot of scary stuff and i've kayaked a lot of big rapids and uh my heart never races as fast as when i'm you know gripping the string and thinking about drawing my bow on on an animal and uh it's just like i mean my my very one, my best friend, you know, I got to accompany him on an attempt at a sheep hunt last year. And he's like one of the probably the most accomplished all around outdoor athlete mountain person that I know. Hmm. Besides you, Jonathan. Stop. <laughs> no, Stop. But he is, he's like, I mean, an incredible. like He's, he things he's done or, you, you know, he could be a, truly be like a professional at m- multiple things. And uh, he said that standing, uh, try, trying to draw his bow at 30 yards on a mature sheep, which took us like five days to get him there, was like the most intense thing he'd ever experienced. <laughs> so, and this is a guy who's been buried in an avalanche twice. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, okay. it's, it's pretty intense. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. So, just to recap a little bit of where we are, because one of the things I really want to do with these amateur hour Conversations is kind of have a person make the case to the rest of us about why they find this to be such a compelling activity or craft. And so you just spoke really well about this um, the ethic of it. You know, by shooting with a traditional bow, you absolutely have to get closer to an animal that you're hunting. And I think you just talked about that well. You've also talked about the aesthetics of a traditional bow that you just find very beautiful and kind of compelling as opposed to the machine that is a compound bow that has a trigger, right? What else do you want to say here? Maybe it's referencing back to something you've already said in this conversation, but, but help us build the case here.
1: Okay, two things well we're going to talk about bows themselves, and I want to talk about bows themselves because bows and the people that make them is a really cool thing It's like like you talked about craft there's there's a bunch of like true dedicated kind of like old school craftsmen out there making these things one at a time with their hands, which is super cool, and I really appreciate that um, but before I talk about that, I want to talk about one other aspect of archery that that really um, is really important to me, and it's aside from the hunting part which I could talk about forever. And I've talked about here, the just like the the act of shooting is, um, is, is a really, really cool thing. And, uh, you know, I would say that I've never been a person who has been successful in meditation. I've tried a few times to have a meditation practice. And I I know I only have myself to blame and I need to get better at it. It's a skill to practice like anything else. But for me, um, archery is kind of like, my almost equivalent to it and for me anyway the the barrier to entry is kind of like i don't really like exercising but if i'm riding a bike and going fast or skinning uphill so i can ski downhill it doesn't feel like exercise and i'm having fun right shooting a bow for me for meditation is kind of that way like it's very enjoyable and uh when i shoot you know, you have to kind of be in this mental place where you're extremely focused and you get real feedback, right? Especially because I'm not, I'm not like looking down a barrel, looking at sights or anything like that. My, my visual reference when I'm shooting is the target. I look at, it's like throwing a baseball. You know, I look at the target and I do, I go through my motions, the mechanics of my body. I, I feel the way my muscles move. I feel the way my back, my back gets tension across it. And, uh, and then I have like a kind of a, a process by which I, I kind of initiate the shot. But if I don't do it right, I get immediate feedback. (laughs) The arrow doesn't go where I want it to. And so it's kind of like meditation with like a slap in the face when you screw it up. And especially like during ski season when I'm guiding every day and I come home kind of frazzled, kind of fried at the end of the day or my job as a doctor or or I'm like have a, you know, stressful day in the ER, stressful day, I can pick up my bow and the whole world just kind of vanishes and becomes the bow, the arrow and the target. And I just kind of kind of refreshes me and allows me to refocus which I think is a really cool part of archery especially that type of archery and maybe all shooting sports are like that to an extent Uh, but archery the traditional archery is like my
0: my variation (laughs) I love that actually and I think that the phrase or term I think of while you're talking is like centering yeah that whole world with all its craziness and oh you forgot to get that from the grocery store and that person yelled at you earlier in the day, everything gets kind of shrunk down and centered to that target and to that action. Yep. Um, I That resonates a lot and is easy to see how that is a compelling form of meditation.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'll even take it one step further and uh, there's a, there's a thing that's involved in all types of shooting. As far as I know, whether you're shooting a gun or a bow or whatever and that's the natural tendency to do something called recoil bracing. That's like a firearms term. But the idea is, is that once you shot a bow or a gun once, you know that like there's going to be you know some type of like explosion or some type of like kind of violent thing that's occurring pretty close to your face. For example, whether it's <laughs> mm-hmm. the string going and the bow vibrating or the re- the recoil of a firearm, or the bang of a firearm. And like if you watch somebody. Um, you know, who shoots a gun and like, say they're shooting a revolver and there's, they get to like the empty chamber. They still flinch when they pull it back and you see the gun still move because they're kind of like, ah, especially if they're not a a highly trained shooter. And uh, so with archery, same thing, You, you brace for recoil and with firearms, you can get around that by like focusing all your mental energy on the squeeze of the trigger. And then the shot should surprise you when it goes off. That's kind of a basic, simple kind of principle of firearms is that you acquire the target And then you squeeze it, focus all your mental energy on the squeeze and the shot should surprise you so that you don't brace for it. Otherwise, if you doesn't, if you just like, you just rip the trigger back, your body knows it's coming right at that second. And you're going to like flinch basically, and that could affect your accuracy. So it's really tricky with a, with a traditional bow because you don't have a trigger. And so like, I mean, you're literally letting go of the string, which is like, which is for most people, like a conscious thing to do. So if you watch, you know, I've done. Tons and tons of self-video, slow-mo video video of myself shooting my bow. Like, it's embarrassing how many videos I have of myself (laughs) on my phone shooting my bow. But, like, zoomed up right to my face and watching, like, do my eyes squint? Do I close my eyes? Do I flinch back my face from the string? And all those little movements, you know, magnified out 30 yards away can be the difference between, like, a, a, a nice clean hit and then the arrow being a foot off of where I want it to be. And so, there's all these cool kind of mental tricks that i've been learning to employ to try to get around to, to try to make it kind of a surprise and it it's it's like even magnifies that uh the meditative aspect of it for me even more because i i grab my bow in a certain way every time and then i consciously decide like i make it i make what i think is like a conscious decision that i mean like do this right and go through the steps and then i once i make the decision to do it right and i'm stealing this a little bit from this guy who kind of teaches this stuff um I like go through my process and then I do these mental exercises to like do my best to surprise myself when the shot goes off. It's really cool. It's really cool when it works. And I I mean, I like I literally practice it every day and it's taken me quite a while to get there with that particular aspect of shooting. And that's something I just kind of figured out, you know, I'm 43, I started shooting a bow when I was tiny and I just figured that out a couple of years
0: ago. <laughs> so, can you talk about like what is one or two of the actual steps? Uh...
1: Yeah, so I'm still working on a couple things, but um, so I, the things that work best for me are probably still kind of cheating. I haven't like achieved like Zen mastery of this yet, but I have like little mechanical tricks that I do. So I'll take like the fingernail of my pinky finger because the way I hold my bow, like the whole bow kind of sits in the web of my hand. It's really just like I hope, basically, I just hold the bow with my thumb and index finger and then the bow just sets and then that's only there to like, so it doesn't shoot out of my hand when it when it goes off. So I have a loose grip on the bow, and it's just pushing against my hand. But then I'll take my pinky finger, which is free. And I have a little spot just naturally on the the grip of the bow or the riser, where I can kind of apply pressure to my fingernail. And then I mentally transition everything. to the pressure I'm applying of my fingernail on the edge of the bow until it slips off. And when it slips off, I have my brain kind of programmed to like, that's the moment. And that way, still kind of a surprise. And then I've done like little devices, like little strings or like or little, little springs on the bow where I like just kind of do the same kind of thing, but I like just push it with my finger just to like give my brain something to focus on. So I'm not thinking about like aiming or releasing. The release should be the, um, like in like the professional archers and like the Koreans and stuff, they don't talk about the release as a part of the shot. They have all these stages of the shot and then there's hmm. like follow through. You like you know you get to you get to your spot and then fall through there's no step called release. The release should be like a subconscious process that just happens at the right moment huh it's pretty huh. cool it's pretty cool, so those are some of the things I've done and i think there's uh, the other thing I've done um uh this came from this the same guy that uh has taught me some of this stuff is you um you can like you know create like pressure in your mouth with like your tongue or your lips and then just kind of like and you know like or like almost something like that and you just Suck and suck and suck on your lip until it pops, and that's what you focus on, and then and then that's what you train your brain to trigger off of. I don't like that one as much personally, but some people are really successful with that, I guess. But it's cool stuff. It's kind of it's just like fun mental kind of like borderline psychological.
0: (laughs) Pretty fun borderline borderline crazy people stuff. Okay, amazing. (laughs) All right, let's talk about bows and the people who make them. Yeah. So, uh, and, well, we're going to stick just to traditional bows again here,
1: um, yeah. leave out the compound bows here. Um, that said, there are like ma- major, large sc- larger scale manufacturers of traditional bows. I think for the most part, those bows are still generally, even though they're made like in a factory, thing. think so it's my understanding again, amateur hour here, I think they're kind of still pretty, pretty intensively handmade. I think it still requires a lot of hands on the bow. Um, but there's like big companies that have been around for a long time, like bear archery. Fred bear was a very famous bow hunter and the company still exists and still makes some pretty darn nice traditional bows as well as modern compound type bows. But, uh, the bows that really appeal to me that I really gravitate toward are these kind of like one man. And I say man, cause they are for whatever reason, almost all dudes <laughs> that are, I'm sure there's some female billiards out there. And if, if you're out there and you're listening, let me know. I'd love to check out your bows, but, um, but it's almost all dudes and uh they uh, they're making a bow you know i think a lot of them start in their garage and they learn the craft and then they get better at it and they start selling them um and and some of these guys are kind of like legendary in the in the traditional bow world you know you, you'll you'll be like and and some of them are very recognizable you know you'll see somebody you'll think oh you got a Tolkien or oh that must be a pearson or 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 whatever you know pearson's a really old bow but anyway like that you'll know it by like who's bow that's a dick robertson bow or whatever you can just tell when somebody has it in their hand if you know bows um so i really like that aspect of it and there's some that look kind of like each other but kind of for the most part despite the fact this is like really simple tools really simple object like every bowyer's bows are distinct have their own real look and feel to them and there's some engineering to it right so they are trying to like get the most efficient cast and they want a bow that doesn't it's kind of like in skis, you know, they want a bow that doesn't like vibrate a lot in your hand when the shot goes off. They want, you want like nice, dead, comfortable bow in your hand. So you want it to be um, quiet in your hand. You want the bow to be quiet, like in just decibels. It's nice for hunting. It's nice for enjoyment of shooting. Um, And in my opinion, like just makes sense to me that if the bow is loud, that's a lot of energy going into making noise that should be putting like (laughs) <laughs> directed into the, tra- the arrow traveling downrange, and <laughs> not making hmm. noise. So, to me, a quiet bow is indicative
0: of a, a more efficient bow. Do people, wait, do people agree with you on that? Like a quiet bow is indicative of an efficient bow or is that more a Paul forward personal? I have read or heard other people say that, but I don't know if that's like an accepted
1: idea yeah. in the bow world. And. And, you know, a lot of the the most efficient, fastest bows are the carbon bows, and they're pretty noisy. A lot of them, like I've, some of my carbon bows are pretty noisy. So, I don't know. There's probably more to it than that. But especially in long bows, like I just love that feel of that. When I let go of the shot, it's just this kind of little dull, like thud or whisper of the bow. It's really cool. And so, there's a lot that goes into it. And then, you know, just the overall craftsmanship. Some, bows, some manufacturers, some guys that make bows, like this, my favorite bow is... uh a bow made by uh, a father and son team, and I think they're in Hamilton, Montana. Um, last name is Tolke, T-O-E-L-K-E. I have no affiliation. They don't give me anything for free. I just think their bows are awesome. Um, and they know I think their bows are awesome because I tell them, <laughs> I send them emails and say <laughs> your bows are awesome. And and they're like, they're a, he's a well-known bowyer. Like he, like he's everybody who's into this stuff knows this guy. They're they're like perfect. You know, like a lot of them you they'll give you like a you, on the poundage that you'll say you'll say oh i want a bow that's between you know 58 and 62 pounds or i want a 60 pound bow but they'll say you got to have a plus or minus 2 pound range that you just have to accept as the customer and so far dan and uh and jared have just like nailed it on the nose every time and i feel like i give them an extra challenge by i wanted them to copy a bow that i had cuz if i broke it when i was out hunting i wanted to have a backup that i could like leave Wherever I, you know, my truck or at the plane drop or whatever, and it, it like, it. If I close my eyes, it feels exactly the same. This is like a handmade product um, with a lot of, you know, a lot of things we get to it. I have never experienced that with other with other bowyers personally, and I've owned a lot of bows, so hmm. they, they're doing something right there.
0: <laughs> so, would you say that's one of the main? Principles or the main, say, characteristic of a really well-made bow versus maybe a less well-made bow, like a builder a who bowyer. can. When bowyer is the word you're looking for. What is this? What is? How do you sp- spell B- this word? b-o-w-y-e-r b-o-w-y-e-r
1: Boy. Boyer. It's pr- pretty ancient English term, yeah, because you know the British were big archers in wartime way back in the day. Bowyer. I like it. People who make the bow.
0: Yep. So, the better the Boyer, yep. you can just walk in and say, I want this to be a 62 pound. What what does one say when I go uh, visit yeah. so, my favorite Boyer?
1: So, when you're ready to buy your bow, um, hopefully you shot a few bows first. So you kind of have an idea what you want. If you don't, if you haven't, they'll be happy to like kind of help you through it. And they'll if like, if you're a guy coming from a compound bow, they'll like, give you some guidance on like how what you're shooting out would translate into a traditional bow. Um, but, uh, yeah, like if you know what you want, you'll say, you'll say, Hey, you know, my, my draw length is the part of the information they want. They want to know basically the distance from your fingers or where that, the knock of the arrow is the knock is the part of the arrow that applies to the string. The distance from that to basically the grip of the bow is, is your draw length. And you can imagine, you know, I'm six feet tall, I have a certain draw length, my wife is like five four. her draw length would be much shorter, right? So, that has to be accommodated and thought about in the bow, and, and, and the whole process of like the efficiency of the limb, how long the bow should be. So, then he'll say, oh, your draw length is, like I draw about a little over 30 inches. So, I'll say, um, my draw length is a little over 30 inches, and he'll say, well, how strong a boat? how, how many pounds do you want to pull? And um, I'll say, like, I, I like 60 or 65 or whatever. I, I, t- I tend to gravitate to bows around 60 to 62 pounds of my draw length and i think they're like a good compromise of for me with my build and strength whatever a good compromise of shootability um where i can hit, hold them and shoot them easily but still a lot of power and can shoot through i mean they'll shoot right through a move with so no problem with the right arrow and so um so i'll say that and then he will say he'll say well you know if you were only drawing 40 pounds I could probably make you a 56 inch bow, but because you want to draw 60, the limbs need to be a little bit longer to accommodate that or whatever. He'll might say something like that, so he'll kind of put some input into what I want. And then, uh, and then he'll build it for me. And he'll say like, what, what, what wood veneers do you want? What woods do you want in the grip or the riser as we call it? Um, And, uh, and then he might say like, you know, what type, I'm really particular about my grip, really, really particular about how the grip feels. Cause right, you only have, you know it's like your ski boots right it's your only contact point to your equipment or your and so i want that to be like perfect in exactly the way that i want it and i have really there's, there's certain reasons why i want my grip the way i want it to, to relative to how i shoot and so like that's the only thing i'm like really a stickler on is like the grip's got to be right and i'll send a bow back if the grip's not right i've done that before um and say like please modify this or make me a different one um but uh and the good builders nail it every time you know like Folies nail it, um, but uh, those are, that's kind of the conversation right, and then oftentimes I'll say like, "Oh, I kind of like these like beautiful myrtle veneers or this this ma- figured maple, and I'll be like, but you you know I'll, I'll usually give them some like artistic uh, license hmm. and say like, license match it to whatever you like, you know, build it if you if you have some accents that you want to put in there for whatever reason, I'm a little partial to like domestic woods like North American woods, and a lot of beautiful figured woods come from like Africa and South America. And I'm just not that into that. I think that's questionable, like the practices that get that wood here and whether they came from a endangered forest. And I just like the idea of the woods being from North America. So that's my one of my only criteria, like make it domestic wood, please. So th- this is the point where I wanted to mention that like, so the types of bows that I'm personally like really accustomed to and really familiar with are these like, like laminated bows that are made with some fiberglass or bamboo. And those kind of bows have been around for a long time. But like 100 years long time, or maybe 150 years long time. But the bows that really intrigue me, and that is like kind of my next, I think, venture into archery, are bows that are called, um, called self bows. And that basically is a bow where you get a, a piece of wood. In this case, the wood really matters, because that's where the that there's nothing but wood. And the people that are really good at making these bows, follow the grain with their own hands using sharp hand tools. And they basically take up a chunk, like a stave of wood, a chunk of wood, and they carve that piece of wood following the grains. so they don't cut the grains into like a really beautiful functional weapon. And uh, it's super cool. And I, I really want to get into it. I want to build one and I want to hunt with it. But I'm, I haven't really, that just hasn't been something I've made time for yet. But those guys are true craftsmen also, the ones that do it well.
0: They're really, The really self cool. bows.
1: Yeah. And I mean, laminated bows are pretty ancient too. You know, like there's evidence of... You know, even here in Alaska, like Alaska has pretty crappy wood for bows. Like we don't there's places in the world where there's like really good wood, like U wood, hickory, Osage Orange is like legendary. Uh but you is like a really good wood that's like you is like what English longbows were made out of, um, which were like famous bows in battle, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, Alaska has mostly crappy bow woods. And so um, being like the amazing kind of wilderness engineers that they were, Alaska natives. Figured out that if you have a crappy wood to make a functional bow, you need to laminate it, and they would laminate it with things like like you know rawhide or sinew, um, like you know tendons and ligaments from animals that they shot, and they would laminate that into the back of the bow to give it extra strength and power. Um, And that technology exists like in ancient cultures all over the world. Pretty cool, Um, and those those are kind of like the predecessor to the kind of bows that I use, which you know like with fiberglass have probably been around for uh, 150 years, 100 years, something like that.
0: Hearing you talk, you know, we would say most skis are not custom made skis. There are stock models produced by a manufacturer and most people go by, you know, the length of a ski that they are looking for and the manufacturer in the ski world tends to make whatever five to seven different lengths of that ski and there will be often slight modifications to the widths and the dimensions of these things but it's not the case that most traditional bows are actually custom products are they?
1: Probably not. I mean, in the no, I would say no. I mean, in the world, I would say no. Cause I think like in Asia and all these places that have like really robust like archery clubs and cultures, they're all using like, you know, factory made bows that are like, you know, you go and you buy a sixty inch bow with thirty pound limbs and you buy a metal or wooden riser that goes on they go on and it's like made in a factory. And I think I'm sure they're somewhat handmade like skis are made in handmade factories in Asia or whatever. So I would say like as a total, no, but I would say that um the people who are like into bow hunting like traditional bow hunting like i am i think most of us if we can afford to have a traditional or custom bow made most of us will ultimately end up doing that because they're just super cool (laughs) and there's a pretty robust like used trad or used custom kind of trad bow market like um i used to i used to kind of buy and sell bows um until i got so picky about my grip that i didn't want to do anymore (laughs) <laughs> I just couldn't stand using a grip that wasn't the grip that I wanted. Um, mainly because it like really affected my shooting ability, like having the right grip. I just shoot so much better with a good grip. And so... They're um, called
0: risers, Paul. We, no, we prefer gri- to the call them riser. the risers. No, gri- oh, <laughs> the grip the different. The grip is it. the
1: part of the riser your hand goes on, basically.
0: The grip um, is the part of the riser. Okay.
1: Yeah. Damn really. it. I could sh- if I had a bow, if we had a bow and we're in the room together, I could show you. Um, I guess I have one over there, but... um. <laughs> <laughs> not the refrigerator, okay, okay. I'm not going over there.
0: <laughs> keep one, keep them close. So,
1: um so yeah, I would say most aren't, but there's there must be enough people buying them because there's gosh, there's got to be at least I would guess there's at least twenty plus people who are making like I would suspect like a decent seems like a decent living off of just making bows mm-hmm. uh, in the United States, and the, the custom bow thing is there's a you in other countries that I've heard of, but it's like, it's a pretty American or maybe North American phenomenon. There's some great ones in Canada too, but, um, it's a pretty American thing.
0: Hmm. The custom traditional bows is I a pretty so. American thing. Okay. I think
1: so. There's like a cool custom bow company, like in Estonia that I've heard about. I actually had one of those bows briefly. Um, and like a few other places, but for the most part, it's like a US thing. As far as I, my understanding is. Hmm. I could be wrong about okay. that. I mean it's an amateur. This is you know amateur, it's amateur and, hour. I could yeah. be totally wrong about that. I apologize if if you're in, you know, Australia and there's a robust custom bow market, let me know. I, I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sort of a follow-up question on this is like, let's shift categories. Like if we're talking about like the world of watches, Switzerland still has this like, oh, if it's made in Switzerland, it's kind of regarded as like better. That's like this mark, right? Like Swiss made when it comes to watches and, you know, whiskey or bourbon in the United States. A lot of people are still confused about this. Bourbon does not have to only be made in Kentucky. um, But a lot of people still think that, right? And like bourbon production is viewed as like, well, if it's made in Kentucky, you get sort of bonus heritage legacy hallowed ground points do we have certain areas in the custom traditional bow world where like the bow makers tend to you know exist and make bows in very specific regional areas that's my very good question paul
1: that's a good
0: question um I had no idea that was thing. We made we cut it out of the podcast, but Paul started like making fun of me for bringing up the world of watches. But that's hundred percent true (laughs) in the watch world. It's like "Ah, Swiss made. I believe you.
1: I believe you. Um, So to answer your question, um, the most the people that make uh, custom traditional bows are in places where they're where hunting's fairly popular, and I would say that's about like the only kind of consistency there i would say um i don't think there's like a part of the country where it's like oh that's
0: where the good bows are made uh, so much or a part of the world right yeah, scotland and scotch like ah yeah. the hallowed ground right i
1: mean there, there's there's a lot of different kinds of bows right And there's a, there's a whole categories of bows that i don't know anything about you know there's like bows that are really popular there's like there's like bows made to, designed to be shot off of a moving horse and those are like really popular in Asia and you only get those like in Asia. There's like these weird, or I shouldn't say weird. There's there's these archery games that are popular like in Bhutan where they have like their own weird bows. To me, weird. For them, it's normal. And, <laughs> you keep uh, saying weird. <laughs> I know. I, apologies, Bhutanese listeners. <laughs> but, so, <laughs> <laughs> so. It's amateur hour. Everybody forgive him. I'm really sorry if that offended somebody. So I don't think so, though. I think that they're mostly made, you you know, the the world of bows I'm into are bows that are mostly made for hunting by hunters. Like guys that love to hunt themselves and they started making bows because they like to hunt with bows and they think bows are really cool. And uh, like, you know, there's a lot of bow makers in Montana. There's a really well-known bow maker in Colorado or probably several. Um, There's a bunch like in the East Coast and the Southeast. There's some in Canada, but mostly places where hunting is like fairly popular. And uh I think that's just the connection there. I think, like you know, the world of target archery. I really don't know where those guys, where the guys and gals bows are made. I have no idea. um I think they're in there. They tend to be more, you know, like there there's a lot more metal in those bows, like the competitive competition bows. So they're like CNC machined in machine shops, and then the limbs are laminated by certain people. So kind of a different world. But um no, there's not like a a, a Switzerland of of traditional archery
0: bows that I know of. <laughs> hmm. Let's talk pricing and price ranges. Cause this is another thing that's kind of fascinating, like in the craft world. Again, skis. You can't really buy a pair of skis that costs like $12. But then, you know, there's also not skis, except ludicrous ones that shouldn't really exist, that cost like $10,000, right? All things considered, it is a relatively compact. Price range when it comes to skis Mm -hmm. i would say same is true of beer that is absolutely not true of something like whiskey right right like you can have your right you have your cheap cheap whiskey and then the wildly expensive stuff how broad of a range is there when it comes to traditional bows and and we'll you know you've talked a lot about custom traditional mm-hmm. bows mm-hmm. so let's include those what's the range here it's actually pretty similar to
1: skis i mean to the dollar you know like you can get a a, a nice uh you know a factory made recurve bow but you there's like an entry-level bow that's perfectly fine perfectly enjoyable to shoot that you can get for a couple hundred dollars and it'll be totally fine and you could get one in, with heavier limbs and take it hunting but uh for the most part, like a, a nicer bow, a nice bow is gonna start well, like you know, if you went and bought it off off the shelf, like a pre-made bow from Bear or something, you know, five to seven hundred dollars would probably be where they start. You could probably get one as cheap as three fifty. Um, and then the custom ones tend to kind of start around eight or nine hundred. And um, or there's at least one company I can think of that makes, you know, like three thousand dollar bows. But I think for the most part, you get a nice custom bow for like a with like really nice veneers and to your specifications for twelve hundred to fifteen hundred dollars somewhere in there twelve
0: to fifteen yeah I think it's for like a really like a really kind of bespoke bow like this so like, that's really nice twelve I mean, to fifteen hundred is really nice up to the I mean you're not getting you're not getting like you know
1: gold inlaid scrimshaw and things like that which are a thing like there's a company called Blacktail that makes bows that are like. They're like artwork, you know, they have gorgeous scrimshaw and they use like precious metals and like really exotic materials and they can be like $3,000 or something like that. But I've never bought, I think the most I've ever paid for a custom bow is probably like in that twelve to the $1,300 range. And, uh, and they were like, they were for lack of a better word, they were like bespoke bows to to my specification. They were exactly what I
0: wanted. And, uh, so yeah, kind of in that ballpark. I've also learned today the word scrimshaw. Mm. Should I have known that word? I would think being your, what do you call it when there's like beautiful engraving in like
1: in your world of watches? Is it just engraving?
0: I don't really know anything about watches, so
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah maybe, it's the, maybe it's the wrong term, but I, I've always, I've described that term to, 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 you know, like an engraved so, surface. Yeah, like engraving. So like you, you can imagine like, you know, a beautiful piece of wood with like a a hunting or a woodland motif engraved by hand into it and then inlaid with with maybe like gold or something like that, something fancy to like kind of highlight it with accents.
0: Okay, this might be amateur hour, but I (laughs) do have access to Google. So, I just looked up Scrimshaw. And what I am finding is the definition of Scrimshaw is scrollwork work engravings and carvings done in bone or ivory. Typically, typically it refers to the artwork created by whalers engraved on the byproducts of whales, such as bones or cartilage. Huh? Interesting.
1: Well, I, I would say that that's interesting. I, maybe it's because I'm around a lot of um, ivory art being where I live right now that I uh, yeah. thought that was applicable to um, to wood as well. But if that's true, then I've learned something that scrimshaw yeah. only applies to bone or ivory. Um, Straight amateur hour. That said, I sometimes like it. there's, that said, my next bow is going to have, uh, I'm, I found a, on my sheep hunt this year, I found some horns of a sheep that didn't make it through the winter. And I'm going to send that to my bowyer and have him incorporate that into um, a part of my next bow. So, maybe I'll have some scrimshaw, some actual scrimshaw done. Well, wow. maybe, I
0: don't know, you didn't say horn. I'm not sure if horn applies. <clears throat> well, boner. well, okay, boner another ivory. broader definition is to create a small ornamental handicraft, also called a scrimshaw, by carving or engraving on bone, originally whalebone or whale's teeth, ivory, or other materials. You kind of oh, got, okay. you get to ride the, the broad, generic other materials. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough.
1: Yeah, look at, if, if, if you want to look at some bows that are like really fancy like that, I've never even shot one of these bows, but if you go to blacktailbows.com, you can see bows that are like pr- kind of over the top with the artwork involved in them.
0: But but what we're saying is at that point when we're getting into engravings and the like, this no longer has any performance right bearing on the product it Correct. is merely and exclusively ornamental i would agree with that yeah i would say
1: that's 100 percent true
0: yeah I, I would say that's exactly right okay i'm so tempted to ask about arrows but i feel like that's maybe an entire other conversation <laughs> should we save that is that a whole other conversation or do i give you a couple oh, minutes on arrows about, i mean arrows is something that i do actually like i i feel like a
1: little bit of a Like, not a complete traditional archer because I've never made and hunted with my own bow, not yet, but I have made hundreds and hundreds of arrows. Uh, I've never like started with a piece of raw wood, but I've made hundreds of arrows starting from raw wooden shafting and then done the whole rest of the part myself. Um, and I've, yeah, I'm obsessed with arrows, I'm always thinking about arrows, but maybe we should have it to be another podcast or let's another let's make that we're going to save
0: arrows. <laughs> we're we're going to save arrows for another conversation, which we will definitely have. But, but before I let you go, let's say I'm like, Paul, I appreciate you. You're the best. I want to buy you the bow of your dreams and you have 30 seconds to decide. So you better hurry up. You got 30 seconds or this offer goes away. What would you have me gift you and you better hurry up and decide and why that particular product? I would have I would, the bow I already have, the bow that I had duplicates of, the Tolki Whistler.
1: It's, it's the, to me, it's the perfect hunting bow. I've never found anything better. And I've shot wow. dozens of bows. Hunted with dozens. I've a hunted with dozens of bows. I've hunted with at least a dozen bows, and that bow is just for me. It's
0: perfect. Wow. We might need to get the Tolkies on this podcast. <laughs> You'll have to co-host that one with me, <laughs> or we or we take a road trip. Yeah. 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 And they'll be like, "Oh my God, that stalker guy!" Yeah, <laughs> is... not this guy again. What does he want now? <laughs> well, that's pretty impressive. Okay, so your your dream bow, you actually you actually have two of them already. Yep. Yeah.
1: I wow. mean, I'm I'm kind of a with all things. You know, I've never really cared that much about top sheets on skis, and I'm kind of a pragmatist. I mean, I love I really appreciate beautiful wooden veneers, and I I wouldn't say that the Tolkies have like the very nicest veneers. Typically, they've got beautiful veneers. There's, there's some bow companies that like really take pride in like finding crazy, crazy figured veneers. But they're all they're beautiful. Um, but just I think from like a engineering standpoint, and just a craftsmanship standpoint, those bows are really exceptional. And they just, for me, they just shoot so well. I mean, one of the things about bows, kind of like lights, you know, how like light skis, we, we talk, you and I both talked about it ad nauseum, literally, I think we've literally been, become yeah. nauseous from how much we talked about ski weight. But yeah. uh, so short bows are kind of like the equivalent to that. Like a lot of people have it's, the traditional thinking is that a short traditional bow is inherently difficult to shoot. Unstable, it's twitchy, it's unforgiving of poor form. So all things that probably sound familiar to you, lots of other things yeah. we talk about. Yeah. And um, the Tolkien's, they're they are not the only ones, but, but they I think they have like one of the better executions of it. Have been able to engineer a longbow, which is typically by you know it's called a longbow. <laughs> um, most of them are fairly long in length. Uh, that is only fifty-eight inches long, which is very short uh, for a for a bow that would be considered a longbow. That I can shoot as well as any sixty-six or sixty-eight inch bow, um, which is a, a which is a long longbow, like considered like a target longbow. And uh, I think that's just really really cool super cool that, they, that they've done that. Plus, I have really like beaten those bows up a lot and I've had zero issues with them. Haven't broken it yet. Haven't really, haven't made any compromise in its ability to, to shoot. It shoots exactly like it did the day I got it. And I have, that thing has been on, I mean, like probably a hundred plus days of
0: pretty hard wilderness hunting. Hmm. How many days out, I guess that would be the way to frame it, would you expect a well-made bow to last? I think if you take care of them, I mean, I, I still shoot.
1: I have a bow on my bow shelf, um, or bow shelves that, um, was my grandpa's bow and then gave it to my dad and I've killed moose, a couple of caribou with that bow. And I still shoot it sometimes, it, you know, bows can, can get brittle and delaminate and be dangerous to shoot. So you want to like, kind of be careful. And if in doubt, don't string up or draw an old bow. Um, But I'd have to ask, you know, people like the Tolkies or somebody who makes bows. But I mean, I have reason to think that like I could, when my son is, you know, my age, he might be able to shoot those bows. I don't, I don't see why not. If I take decent care of them, that might be naive of me. Um, The fiberglass, you know, there is ultimately there's resin and glue in there, just like skis. So they may start to come apart or delaminate over time. But um, I would think easily 20 years, easily. I would be surprised if you didn't get that. I mean, I have, I mean, one of the bows that I still shoot was built for me. It was my first, it was my first ever custom bow. I got it in 2008. And, um, I mean, it looks and shoots just like it almost, uh, not quite, but that's, not, that's almost just like when I got it.
0: Hmm. Wow. Well, what kind of maintenance do you have to do on a bow? Not like much. We know with skiing, right? You better sharpen your edges. You got to fix, you know, base gouges and core shots. You should at least, not that yeah. many people do, but like, is there much maintenance on these things? No, I mean, the, you should unstring
1: it um, if you're not going to shoot it a lot. Uh, is that, you know, that could be bad for it, but I shoot my bow almost every day. So I just leave it strung, typically. Um, so, um, and other than that, you know, like occasionally if I, if if like part of the, if like the wood on the grip or the riser uh it gets real dinged up and like the the protective like lacquer or whatever gets gets chipped off i might just take a little super glue and put it over that just to reseal it uh, like a little cyanoacrylate glue with, i don't do anything fancy you, you can send them in and have them refinished by the bowyer but i've never done that but no not much i mean they're very that's what's so cool about them. they're like this really simple tool and, and you know going back to hunting compound bow with all the stuff if you drop it and you mess up the sights or you or you, you know, knock the string off the bow, you're probably done hunting unless you're like really clever or happen to have a lot of really kind of specialized tools and equipment there. Um, you know, short of me, like just breaking it, like, you know, if it gets the string fall- gets cut or the bow falls down and gets a chip, you a bang in the, in the grip, I've, I've
0: never hurt one and I've done a lot of dumb stuff. <laughs> And you don't have to restring these things like you might a tennis racket? Well, I mean, the, so the, you take this, like,
1: it's really, I can, you know, I can take the string off in 10 seconds. And so, and put it back on again. So, like I said, when I'm shooting it a lot, I'll just leave, I'll leave it strung. And you will, you will go through a string, you know, like you got to, you do wax the string. I guess I should say that you like, I used to use just actual beeswax. Um, I sometimes still use, I had a junk, chunk of it. I lost it. I bought some like commercial string you know, string wax. Um, but uh, so I wax the string and, and I've never really worn a string out, but I'll replace them if they start to look... I guess that's not true. If they start to get kind of frayed and beat up, I'll put, it, I'll put a new string on the bow. Um, but other than that, no. And it, like, again, if I'm not going to shoot it, if, I, if I'm like, you know, going to go on a trip for a couple weeks where I can't bring my bow, I'll unstring all my bows and leave them, leave them someplace. Um, but, and, you know, you don't want to get them super hot. Because the, in theory, just like any laminated piece of equipment, you know, you could get them so hot that the resin would soften. Um, but I live in Alaska.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Where it's just pow days every day, even in, you know, July, August, September. It's more just rainy and cold every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was trying to trying to throw a bone to Alaska tourism. But, uh, yeah. Um. Hey, man, this has been really fun. Any final thoughts parting words uh about this trad life of yours try archery it's really cool it's a really fun activity and
1: whether you have any intention ever to hunt or not if, if you have any interest at all in shooting a bow i'd say you know go find a go find it, a reliable archery shop and tell me want to try it out and archery shops love love like people that come in and want to learn like they love it huh I, i've Whenever I've been around archery shops, which admittedly isn't that much, because I kind of do all my own stuff, but, and I've always kind of been a bit of a recluse in that way. But, um, but, but they all my impressions are they love it. And there's actually a not, again, no affiliation at all, but there's an amazing archery shop in Denver that has the best selection of used traditional bows probably in the world, and the best Hot. instructors that I've ever encountered
0: for archery. I have actually flew there for three days of instruction one time. I remember this. When yeah. did you do that? um cuz we were trying to link up and and it, yeah. it w- didn't make it work but
1: i think it was like 2017 or 18 cuz i went kayaking in california uh I, ran, I went ran some creeks and then on the if it was the same trip or different trip i went to colorado and then to but yeah it was, i think it was 2018 and uh and it was awesome the instructor it's particularly the one guy um uh tom i, I mean just incredibly awesome guy to learn how to shoot from, uh, whether you've never touched a bow or you've been shooting for 30 years at that point like I had. Um, so, yeah, find a good archery shop and uh, go try it. It's pretty fun.
0: What's the name of the shop in Denver?
1: Uh, Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear. Really nice people. And they, they, have, they, have, they have modern archery equipment there too, but they definitely are, are pretty special uniquely focused on uh traditional archery equipment and they're really nice people um, for sure
0: that's awesome well hey man that's a wrap on amateur hour amateur hour (laughs) actually lasted about an hour and 15 minutes you know amateur hour went long that's okay we're amateurs um it's really fun and i i know i personally am gonna really enjoy this series i just think it's really fun Anytime you get to hear someone really passionate about a given category, talk about how they got into it and explain it around a bit. So uh, I appreciate you kind of kicking things off for us, and and we have <laughs> we absolutely have a follow up episode on arrows. <laughs> uh, it might not be as interesting. <laughs> I,
1: I i have a hunch it will be but, uh, when um, we get into if we get into hunting broadheads it will be but that might get a little gruesome for our for our listeners
0: we're gonna do it we're just we'll put a you know we'll put a warning advisory uh, at the top and yeah we'll just uh we'll drink some you know strong whiskey and we'll just we'll just forge our way through sounds good <laughs> all right man um Have fun (laughs) above the Arctic Circle there and uh, look forward to seeing you hopefully soon. Thank you so much and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. That was fun. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks to Paul for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from the entire team here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.